Well, please, as you uh, sit back down, take hold of uh, a Bible, which you should find near to where you're sitting, and turn back to page 928 in the Church Bibles, to Jonah chapter 3, to page 928. Well, I want to begin with a serious question. If you were a fruit, what sort of fruit would you be? Okay, it's not the sort of question that Jeremy Paxman is going to ask Tony Blair, but it's still quite early on a Sunday morning and, and, you know, we need a few minutes to wake up. What about the staff team? If the staff team were fruits, what sort of fruit would they be? Well, Kate Selby, that's easy. She would be a kiwi. She's small, green and hairy. She couldn't be anything else. What about Gareth, our youth worker? Well, I think he'd be a coconut. He's fun. You can play with him. And if you knock him really hard on the head, there's something good inside. Jody. Well, I'm not really sure whether Jodie does fruit, unless it's chocolate fruit, so she'd probably have to be a chocolate orange. Or Mike. Well, in a world of disappointing citrus fruit, fruit that is hard to peel and often bitter on the inside, Mike would be a satsuma. Understandingly easy to peel, sweet and full of goodness. But what about the new vicar? The new vicar, well he's from down south, isn't he? Bit of a mystery. I think he'd be one of those specialist fruits from Tesco's finest sections. You know, you don't know much about them, but they look great. Or or Dave, our Scottish student worker. Well, now that he's started going to the gym, it's no more Mars bars, so I was kind of thinking deep-fried bananas. (laughs) It's actually quite easy to deal in caricatures, isn't it? We can know one thing about a person, and we can think we know everything about them. Gareth said to me after the first service that he was inundated with people relishing the fact that I described him as a coconut. But actually it's a caricature, isn't it? You can think you know a person because you know one thing about them. But you need more than a partial picture and half truths if you're really going to know what a person is like. So too with God. And yet so often we settle for second-hand prejudice, for distortions and caricatures. Well, the book of Jonah has something to teach us about who God is, what he's like. And the first reminder from Jonah 3 is this. God is gracious and compassionate. God is gracious and compassionate. You see, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. After the terrifying experience of the Lord's discipline in chapter 2, Jonah once again finds himself face to face with the Lord's challenge. A challenge to take the gospel to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was, verse 3, a very important city. Now why it was an important city is worth pondering. 
See, it may be that it was an important centre for commerce and trade. Perhaps Nineveh was a key player in Middle Eastern business. It may be that it was an important city for Israel. After all, Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire, the increasingly aggressive superpower that was threatening Israel's national security. But it may be that this most unlikely of cities was actually important to God. You see, you could translate verse 3 an important city to God. Maybe this city that was so hostile to him, so hostile to his people, was nevertheless important to God. But whatever the reasons for its importance, if Jonah was going to speak to the key people in the strategic parts of the city, it was a visit that was going to require three days. And so this reassuringly human believer starts into the city, verse 4. His message was blunt and uncompromising. Uh, Doubtless he said more than is actually recorded here. Most preachers can say in five minutes what they usually take 30 to do. But what is recorded here gets to the heart of the matter. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. There seems to be a clear warning about God's judgment. That's certainly how the people of Nineveh understood it. Face to face with the goodness and the rightness of God. The people of Nineveh found themselves confronted with a divine light, if you like, that exposed their own personal darkness. So the king's charge to his people, verse 8 Let people give up their evil ways and their violence. And so face to face with the impending justice of God, there was a widespread repentance, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You see, for the Ninevites, repentance entails a reality check. There was a recognition that God's assessment of their lives was, in fact, right. They began to change the way they had been thinking about God and about themselves, that God was God, and they had been living as if that was not true. In Bible language, there was a turning from sin and a turning to God. Hence the sackcloth, which isn't the way we do things today, but it was the way they did it then. You see, it seems that they acknowledged that God was good and that God was just. And yet they actually needed to hear and to be reassured of something else too. See, the king's question is really very telling, isn't it? Verses 8 and 9. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? 
God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? God is good. God is just. Is he compassionate? Yeah, sometimes our, our view of God is, is but a caricature. It's a half-truth. It's a distortion. God is undoubtedly good. He's indisputably just. But he is also fundamentally compassionate. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. You know, that understanding of God is at the very heart of Old Testament faith. The very heart of Israel's faith. God is, as he proclaimed to Moses, the Lord. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and sin. Every Old Testament believer knew that. So Jonah's own testimony, chapter 4, verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew that was what you were like. The Lord is fundamentally compassionate. You don't have to try and force his arm for forgiveness. See, I wonder how many of us have asked the king's question in verse 9. Who knows? Could God really have compassion on me? Could God really have compassion on my friends? On that member of my family? On those people in my office on those people in that country that seem so close to the gospel could God really have compassion on them do you not sometimes imagine that God is grudgingly compassionate that he is quick to anger that his love is for you like the lovely that his forgiveness is only really for the good. Understand then, as the New Testament puts it, that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is gracious and compassionate. It's not that God ceases to be just when he has compassion on people like us. It's just that there is another who has borne our punishment for us. 
And so when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you can know, without a shadow of a doubt, that God is gracious and compassionate, even towards a world that has turned its back on him, even towards you. Because you, like me, turned your back on him. God is gracious and compassionate towards you. Whatever you've done or haven't done. He is gracious and compassionate towards your wayward son or daughter. However long they have been away from the Lord. He is gracious and compassionate towards your unbelieving husband or wife. However cold they might seem to the gospel. He is gracious and compassionate to those people in your place of work. Even those who seem indifferent, even those who seem hostile to the gospel. He is gracious and compassionate to the ends of the earth. And you know, it's not wishful thinking. It's historical reality. You can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God who is good and just is also gracious and compassionate. It was while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. And so in repentance and faith you can pray to such a compassionate and gracious God, confident that as the psalmist puts it, his love reaches as high as the heavens. God is gracious and compassionate. But then of course the question is, how do people know that? How do people know what God is really like? Now Paul puts it like this in the New Testament. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. And so God directs Jonah, verse 2. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so armed with a message, Jonah heads to Nineveh. God is gracious and compassionate, but the second thing to note from this chapter is this. God's word is effective. God's word is effective. You think, actually, it's not much, is it? A great city, one man and a few words. You feel as if you need something else, don't you? Something extra. Maybe you need a little bit of technology, Jonah. You know, a sort of digital projector and flash computer graphics. Or, or maybe you need a, a snappy slogan from a Judean marketing firm. The kind of firm that might put something together for Marks and Spencers. You know, it's not just words. It's 
premium, matured, quality assured, history soaked, life changing words. Or maybe a free gift. Believe this message within 40 days and you will receive a free quill with stylish parchment. No. God says, proclaim the message I give you, verse 2. Why? Because God's word is effective. So, verse 4, Jonah proclaimed. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And amazingly, they received Jonah's message not as the word of men, but as it actually was. The word of God. See, the sun hadn't even set on day one. And verse five, the Ninevites declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And verse six, when the news, or, or literally when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. God, as Paul puts it in the New Testament, was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Unbelievable, perhaps. And then you think of an 18th century preacher like George Whitfield speaking to vast crowds in the English countryside to crowds of 10, 20, 30,000 people. In one of many similar entries in his journal, Whitfield puts it like this, preached to upwards of 10,000 people. Hundreds were graciously melted. And many, I hope, not only thronged around, but also touched the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. The word of God, every day, mightily prevails. God's word is effective. And remarkably, Jonah seems to experience very little opposition to his preaching. It's not always so. Indeed, the gospel invariably meets with widespread opposition. But people's initial opposition is no measure of the word's effectiveness. Bob Mitchell was a friend of the famous American missionary Jim Elliot. Uh, Elliot, many of you will, will know, was murdered by the Orca Indians, a people that he was trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. Years later, Mitchell was at an international conference for evangelists and he was introduced to a delegate from South America. And in the course of the conversation, Bob Mitchell learned that the evangelist this man standing in front of him was one of the people who murdered his friend Jim Elliot. God's word is effective. The Spirit does use it to change lives. Received with joy or resisted with violence, God still uses his word to do his work. 
I don't know about you, but I need reminding of that. I need reminding of that all the time as I try and share the gospel with friends and with members of my family. Because I'm so easily discouraged. So easily discouraged in the face of people's opposition and indifference. But God is gracious and compassionate and people know that through hearing the gospel message and the gospel message is effective. You don't need to change it. You don't need to leave bits out. You don't need to add bits to it. You just need to explain the message that God has given you and pray that people would welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, trusting the word is effective is a real challenge for the church. Even, I have to say, amongst those of us who say we take the Bible seriously. Now, the writer and theologian David Wells puts it like this, while the inspiration of Scripture is cheerfully endorsed, there is not a lot of confidence that this word can accomplish its purposes. It is almost as if it is assumed that the God who first inspired this word unfortunately did not foresee the massive changes that have come to the late 20th century. The scripture that we have is by itself inadequate. Now, modern we may be, but we still share the same struggle that Christians in every age have known. Can we, or can we not believe that the biblical word is God's means for accomplishing the impossible. That self-serving sinners can be turned into God-fearing and Christ-honouring people. Can we or can we not believe? Well, if you read Jonah chapter 3, you'd have to say yes. God's word can indeed accomplish the impossible. God is gracious and compassionate and his word is effective. Well, finally, God commands all people to repent. God commands all people to repent. See, the way you experience God's grace and compassion is through repentance and faith in the gospel word. And because God doesn't show favoritism, he commands people everywhere to repent. Now, if Jonah's attitude reflected the attitude of the nation, then people in Israel had become rather introspective and parochial in a wrong sense. God chose Israel to bring blessing to the nations. And yet Israel misunderstood God's electing love and settled for a, for a, a local rather than a global perspective. Actually, it was one thing for Jonah to preach to the semi-converted, to the faithless, if not the faithful in Israel. It was one thing to do that. But it was quite another to take God's word to the nations. The irony is, Nineveh's repentance put Israel's to shame. Nineveh was, Nineveh was given 40 days to reform its ways, and at the end of day one, there was citywide repentance. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness and she was largely disobedient and unrepentant even at the end. 
Now maybe Israel needed to learn a lesson. Maybe even we need to learn a lesson from the repentance of a pagan king. See, why in an account where so many things are recorded with surprising brevity, why is there this detailed record of the actions and words of this pagan king? Jonah's sermon is given half a verse. The response of Nineveh's king is given four whole verses. Why? Well, perhaps the writer of this book intends his readers, intends you and me to learn from the actions of this Ninevite king. Perhaps there is here a powerful and humbling picture of true repentance. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Is that not an incredibly powerful picture of what repentance means? To take off your robe, to step down from your throne and to bow before Almighty God who is the true King? I suspect it is easier in a church like this to boast in achievement, in influence, in wealth. It is, if you like, the currency that appears to buyers acceptance from one another. It is not so with Almighty God. God's rule humbles all arrogance and exposes all pretense. Even an Assyrian monarch had to leave his throne and remove his robes and bow in penitence before the king of kings. And so it is with you and me. There are no exceptions. God calls each one of us to repent and to go on repenting. To go on turning from sin and turning to Christ. God's challenge is to stop thinking and living as if God is not truly there. But to live in the light of his reality. And you know his challenge is even more urgent now that Jesus has come. Facing the hard and unrepentant hearts of his own day, Jesus had some strong words to say to those who thought that they didn't need to repent. Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus. One greater than Jonah. The God who is gracious and compassionate. The God whose word is effective. The God who commands you and me. 
and people everywhere to repent. And so maybe this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, we need to come again to the God who is good and just and gracious and compassionate and to turn in repentance and faith to him. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice that you are a gracious and compassionate God even to people like us. Thank you that though you are good and just, you found a way to bring forgiveness for us, for those we love, for the many in this world who do not know of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us, we pray, confidence in your word that our personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ would lead us to speak of him to others. For your name's sake and for your glory we ask. Amen.